What's going on, everybody? Glenn P. Brooks Jr. here. I'm an author, I'm a speaker, and I'm a coach. And I want to welcome you to We All Need Some Help Wednesday, the podcast. I get the opportunity to add value to entrepreneurs, business owners, and ministry leaders, both on and offline. And this episode is going to be no different. Stick around, and we're going to get started right now. Good to be back, everybody, for We All Need Some Help Wednesday, the podcast. I am super excited about today's edition. We're talking about the story uh, behind the brand. Here's what we know. Um, In a blog post on HuffPost.com, contributing writer Flynn Coleman asks this question, why are stories so powerful? Well, the truth of the matter is that they are more memorable than facts, and our brains are actually wired to respond to stories. Metaphors and anecdotes actually help us to relate our own experiences, uh, providing richness and uh, texture. Uh, Stories bring you into and your listeners into a space that's sort of multidimensional in a sense. It's full of colors and sights and smells and emotions, making us feel as though we were actually living the story. I'm honored today to have uh, a friend who has become a a, a consistent uh, participant of what we do every weekday on Clubhouse, Uh, Lessons Learned uh, in Business is the name of our room there, Uh, and that's where we're actually recording this live podcast, Um, but I'm honored to have Dr. Nicole Rochester. She's a board-certified pediatrician. Um, She she did that work for 20 years, and then she transitioned to really a lot of advocacy work. Work, um, on the behalf of people who are, you know, going through healthcare and navigating the system, uh, particularly, you know, caretakers and people like that, or caregivers, I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, her story behind her brand is very interesting. And one of the things that I, I am endeavoring to do here on this podcast, y'all, is to help you guys understand that when you understand a person's story, you'll get their brand. And the chances of you doing business with people when you understand their story exponentially increases. And so here's, I just want to introduce to you guys uh, my good friend, uh, Dr. Nicole Rochester. Dr. Nicole, it's good to have you. How are you feeling? Thank you, Glenn. Thank you for that introduction. I'm feeling great. I'm really excited to be here. I am so excited. Dr. Nicole, one of the things, and I got to say this for the folks that are listening on the podcast, I remember the first time I met you on Clubhouse. Uh, and for those of you guys who have never used the app, Clubhouse is a completely audio-driven uh, uh, application. So you can't see people. It's not like a Zoom call or anything where you could see people face-to-face. And here's what's funny. Uh, there's a profile picture that everybody has, and uh, you, you have it on today. And it was a doctor. At the time when I first saw you, you were in your white coat with Afro puffs. Girl, let me tell you something right now. I was like, now, I like this woman. I don't know who she is, where she's from, but I like how you represent. You're based in Maryland. Uh, I know you grew up in D.C., and you uh, practiced medicine for 20 years prior to doing the work that you do. Dr. Nicole, can you take us back? Can you take us back to how you grew up? A little backstory on that. And then I want to walk people through your journey as to how that now has informed the incredible work that you do today. Sure. So just to clarify, I was born in D.C., but I literally grew up grew up in Maryland. Like I, we left the hospital and went straight to Prince George's County, which is where I continue to live today. Um, so yeah, I was, I was born, I'm a 1970 baby and, um, I grew up in Prince George's County. Um, and my parents were divorced when I was really young. I was around five years old 
And growing up, there were four of us. I have two older sisters who are a year apart. And then there's a six-year gap. And then I have myself and my brother who are also a year apart. And um, my dad was a uh, police officer for District of Columbia. And my mom, when we were younger, was a stay-at-home mom. And, um, you know, we we grew up in a really kind of tight-knit community that um, over the years changed like a lot of communities throughout the country and, and um, you know, the, the kind of got a little more crime written. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that was something pivotal that we may talk about later. But in terms of my parents, they were divorced when I was really young, which was a huge impact on my life. And interestingly, even though it was back in the 70s, um, we were raised by our dad, not because our mom had any, you know, substance abuse or anything like that. She was an amazing mom. But financially, my dad was better able to care for us. Um, and so we live with our dad. Our dad raised the four of us. We saw our mom every single weekend and maintained an amazing relationship with her. And then eventually both of my parents remarried. So my dad remarried when I was around 10. My mom remarried when I was nine. And um, my dad moved us out of this neighborhood that was at the time mostly black into um, Clinton, Maryland, where at the time it was almost all white and very rural. And uh, and that was really like a culture shock for, for me and my siblings. And honestly, it, we were very angry at my dad for doing that and kind of uprooting us. Um, I understand, you know, I understood later why he did that um, in terms of, you know, increased opportunities, better schools, that type of thing. But um, yeah, so that essentially from an early age, I've always loved science and math. I've known that I wanted to be a doctor since I was probably seven or eight and would regularly tell anybody who listened that I was going to be a doctor and not just that I was going to be a doctor, but that I was going to be a pediatrician. And I just, I mean, God planted that in my heart at a very early age. And so every single thing that I did, I mean, literally starting with like elementary school, I always had that goal in mind. And so I always had, you know, great grades. I was typically a straight A student um, through elementary, through junior high, a couple of B's in high school, um, and then went to college at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and then stayed in Baltimore and attended the University of Maryland School of Medicine for my medical degree. And uh, I don't know where you want me to stop, Gwent, uh, Glenn, but I don't know if you want me to stop yeah, here no, or keep no, going. This, well, first of all, I'm, I'm excited because, uh, you know, as a Baltimore native, all of those historical uh, places that you just mentioned are, are extremely critical to me. I lived in Upper Marlboro for five, six years before uh, we moved to Atlanta. So, you know, I'm trying to figure out why we never met in real life, like because our paths geographically <laughs> have traveled so many, you know, the University of Maryland, like I don't even have time to go into it. One of the things I do want to know, um, Dr. Nicole, is that pediatricians generally, um, you know, or doctors in general, the rigors that you go through to become a doctor, particularly as a black woman navigating that system. I want you to talk a little bit about, you know, you, 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 you was aspire, you, you aspired to be a doctor from early on. 
you actually was able to figure that out um, and get into school and do what needed to be done. You got the grades. You positioned yourself. Uh, getting into Hopkins ain't easy. Uh, I know several friends of mine whose kids have gone to Hopkins, and that is not an easy feat on no level, um, particularly as an African-American female. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the things you learned along the way that you have seen now has directly translated into the work that you do now? Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of um, being an African-American physician, like you said, the, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. I mean, it's very difficult. Um, and unfortunately, there are sometimes barriers that are erected specifically to deter black and brown people from pursuing careers in not just medicine, but in science, technology, you know, engineering. Um, I was blessed in elementary school to have teachers who really supported my dreams. And I didn't mention this, but I was bust, you know, back in the day. In fact, I mentioned that we later moved to Clinton. But interestingly, when I was living in what is now Capitol Heights, what, what used to be Seat Pleasant, um, my, my siblings and I were bust into like Camp Springs, Clinton area as part of the whole desegregation movement. And so my sisters who were older than me had a much different experience than I did. But I had teachers who were very supportive of my dreams. And that's incredibly important because this road to being a doctor doesn't start in college and it doesn't start in medical school. It really starts in elementary school, you know, middle school. And having people who see the gifts in you and who cultivate those gifts and just having people um, let you know that you can do it. And so for many Black doctors, especially some of my friends who, you know, grew up in different areas, maybe the South, they didn't always have that. And um, and so I appreciate that. That was pivotal for me. Um, you know, it was it was difficult. And I will say, you know, at at Hopkins in particular, I didn't really feel nurtured as a student. Um, and that wasn't just because I was black. It was just the atmosphere. You know, it was like you should be you should feel privileged to be here was really the, the attitude that I feel that we received from a lot of our professors. But I was able to um, connect with a network of other black students. We had a very strong black student union. At the time that I entered Hopkins, our class had the largest number of black students ever. I think each year that kind of has gone up, but I was part of the black student union. I was part of the gospel choir. And ultimately I pledged Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And so even on that white campus, I had my network of, um, of black students and we just lifted each other up. You know, we had study groups, and we made sure that if one of us was going to make it, all of us were going to make it. And so that was incredibly important. And it also, you know, my, I went to a high school with a magnet program um, for science and technology. So that is really where I was challenged probably for the first time and had to really learn how to study, got used to staying up really late, you know, not having to turn down opportunities to have fun in order to get projects done and things of that nature. So that's really what made Hopkins, I'm not going to say it was easy, but I was prepared for, um, for college. And then because of the rigor of Hopkins, when I went to medical school, you know, it, I was prepared for that. I was prepared for staying up all night, not that that's healthy, but I was prepared for staying up all night and, you know, studying and, and all of that. So that, that work ethic um, was not only instilled in me by my parents, but, but definitely by, um, you know, my professors and, and even the naysayers. I mean, I'm, I'm somebody, I've always been a little bit 
rebellious, <laughs> not in a, <laughs> but, but my rebellion has never shown up in, you know, like illegal activities or things like that. My rebellion shows up like, oh, you, oh, you think I can't do this? Okay. I'm going to show you. And so, um, you know, I've been that way since I was little. And I think anytime I felt like a professor, you know, thought that I couldn't do something, then I was just on a mission to make sure that I proved them wrong. Wow. Wow. Listen, for those of you guys that may be just tuning in to We All Need Some Help Wednesday, the podcast, I'm talking talking to Dr. Nicole Rochester. Uh, she's a board-certified pediatrician. Uh, she is doing an incredible work um, as an advocate uh, for caregivers um, in the medical field. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about that as we move through, uh, Dr. Nicole. One of the things that I keep hearing you talk a lot about in varying different ways is community, networking, um, being around a group of people that care about you and care about where you're going. This idea of if I make it, we all make it. If I don't make it, none of us make it. And so it's an all-in mentality. Can you begin to transition just a little bit about how uh, the work that you do today is all about that and how you're organizing this effort on so many different levels? Sure. So as you mentioned, you know, I've, I've been I have been practicing pediatrics for almost 20 years, and that's that was my dream. That's all I ever wanted to do. I had an amazing job, great colleagues, you know, decent salary, like for all intents and purposes. I really thought that that was going to be where I lived out the rest of my medical career and ultimately retired. And um, my dad became ill. His marriage to my stepmother ended relatively abruptly. And at the time, his health was also fairly rapidly declining. And, um, and so my two older sisters and I had to kind of suddenly begin taking care of him and um, that started out as kind of a remote thing. I mean, we lived fairly close to him, so we were taking turns checking on him and, you know, making meals for him, occasionally taking him to the doctor, arranging transportation for him to get to dialysis three times a week. Um, but what I saw as I was still practicing pediatrics, but then having more and more responsibilities for my dad, and as the doctor in the family, I was the one that was really kind of overseeing his health care, and I just really started to see for the first time the system in which we receive care and how, particularly for adults and particularly for Black adults, um, it was different. You know, it was very, his world was very different than what I had been accustomed to as a pediatrician where everybody, you know, buys together. Everyone is going to go all out to take care of kids. Um, and naturally with pediatrics, we, we want to hear from the family. We have to talk to the parents. And it was a very different atmosphere for my dad. Um, I, he wasn't even really old. I mean, he was in his like early to mid 60s, but he just, to me, he was being treated like he was a number. Um, I didn't see the compassion from his doctors and the others on his medical team. I didn't see that people were genuinely interested in who he was. And probably most importantly and, and most concerning is that he wasn't receiving good health care. And so, you know, I'm a doctor, so I was able to see behind the scenes. I was able to ask questions that the average person wouldn't ask. And I basically would call them on things that were being done incorrectly, things that were not being done. Um, but initially, when I didn't divulge who I was or what I did for a living, I would get blown off, brushed off. Um, and then ultimately, I started, you know, explaining 
or telling people that I was a physician. And what I saw, Glenn, was like, it was like the Red Sea open. Like all of a sudden, oh, oh, you're a doctor. And like everybody's demeanor would change. Their attitude would change. They would start taking concerns that I had been expressing, you know, for days. All of a sudden now my concerns were valid. And, and over time, what I saw is that my dad was able to receive better care because of my inside knowledge, not just of medicine, but of the system and understanding how to navigate the system, understanding how to escalate the concerns that I had, um, and just knowing the right questions to ask, understanding that you can and should push back when someone says something that doesn't sound right. And so um, as we would navigate these difficult situations, um, I just kept thinking, what are the other, you know, 40 plus million family caregivers doing? What are the other patients doing? And I would, you know, visit him in the hospital. And um, at that time, a lot of times people would have roommates. And so you, I would see that, you know, if you had a roommate that didn't have family members visiting, that they weren't, they were being neglected. I would see this in the rehab facilities as well. And so I just kept thinking about that. Ultimately, unfortunately, my dad passed away. And I just kept having these thoughts that I needed to be helping in some way other than what I was doing. But I mean, I was a doctor, like that's like a dream, right? And I had put blood, sweat, tears, money, you know, my parents had invested in this dream. And so I just kept suppressing these thoughts that were were very clearly telling me that it was time for me to pivot. And then finally, about um, four years after my dad's death, those, you know, God just kept speaking to me louder and louder and louder. And it was something that I just could no longer ignore. And so, um, you know, that's when I ended up pivoting and starting my company, Your GPS Doc. And initially the, the primary goal was really to just help patients and family caregivers first understand the healthcare system. And then second, um, understand how to navigate it so that they could be their most powerful advocates. Mm, I love it. Dr. Nicole, this is blessing me all over more than anywhere else. And I'm sure those that are sitting on stage live as we're recording this on Clubhouse are getting hooked up. Those that are listening to this by way of podcast um, are getting hooked up. I, I want you to kind of go back and I wrote it down when you said it. You can and should push back. Here, here's what I know. Every last one of us knows what it's like to have a family member, some that we, someone that we care an awful lot about um, in the hospital with a condition, um, some really grave um, and quite frankly, a near death type situation. Um, some maybe not so much, but oftentimes because of our lack of education, and this is just across the board, we don't understand medical terms. We don't understand uh, when we're being blown off to a degree. Uh, we don't understand that, well, no, this isn't a function of you personally. They're overworked. And so I, I want you to, if you can, give us three practical ways of how does that look? You can and you should push back. How does that look? Help us out. The, the first thing, and really, the, I probably if I were to say three things, these are all three things, but you need to ask questions. And I know that, you know, for those that are not in the medical field, you may be saying, well, what questions do I ask? Um, but, but it's just being inquisitive and being curious and taking an active role in your own medical care. And, and so we got to kind of like put ourselves back in our two and three-year-old bodies when every time someone would say something to us, we would say, why? You know, Why? And so, you know, if you go to the doctor, as an example, or you take a loved one to the doctor, 
and the doctor says, okay, we're going to change your medication. And you know that you've been on that particular medication for two, three, four years, or your family member has. Don't just take the prescription and say, okay, doc, you know, ask why. Start to engage in conversation with the physician. Why are you changing my medication? Okay. And then, then the next, you know, now, okay, you're changing my medication. After you understand why that change is being made, what can I expect from this? What are the potential side effects from this medication? How will I know if it's working? You know, what should I look out for? And, you know, what, what's next? What's the next step? When do I need to come back? Are there any other things that I need to do? Because in an ideal world, the doctor would spend, you know, an hour with every patient explaining all of this, but that's just not where we are. That's not the healthcare system that we function in. And so people are time strapped and distracted and, you know, there's computers in the room and all kinds of things. And so unfortunately, while most doctors really want to be able to um, engage in dialogue and really make sure that their patients understand things fully, they just, they just aren't able to do it. And so you asking those questions literally slows them down and, and in some ways kind of forces them to be interrupted. And honestly, sometimes the questions that, that you ask will cause physicians to think about things that we hadn't always thought about. You know, I've, I've shifted my thought pattern and have been able to make a different diagnosis just based on a question that a parent has asked me in the exam room. So it's incredibly important to ask questions. It's also important to um, trust your gut. And I think that a lot of times um, because of this hierarchy in medicine, um, but particularly like traditionally where it's like, I'm the doctor, you're the patient, people defer to the education that we have. And yes, my education is extensive and intensive. And I know a lot of things, but it's your body, it's your family member. And that's one of the things that annoyed me about my dad. You know, I was like, I, even before they knew I was a doctor, I know my dad. I knew the subtle changes about my dad. And even if he may have normal blood work, my sisters and I knew when things were about to go downhill and, and when we were ignored, that would be proven. And so trust your gut. You know when something's not right with your own body. You know when your family member is behaving differently. And those subtle signs will often show up long before there's a change in the vital signs, long before there's a change in those laboratory results. And so I need everybody to be comfortable you know, being your own advocate and, and standing up for yourself and your family members. And it doesn't mean being disrespectful. I would never um, advocate for that because you're not going to have a good relationship, you know, if you're coming across as adversarial. Um, but you need to come across as someone who is the expert for your own health, the expert for the person that you're caring for and um, and push back. You know, if they're trying to discharge you from the emergency department, but you know that you're still not feeling well, then you need to say that, you know, I'm really sorry, but I don't think it's safe for me to go home. And this is why, can you explain to me, you know, why this is okay? Why am I still feeling this? What's the plan? And at least make sure that there's um, a plan for, for follow-up. And again, this is incredibly important for black and brown individuals because we know that there's a lot of bias. Um, doctors are people. And unfortunately, doctors, while most of them are not overtly prejudiced, they have their own internal biases that we all carry. And so they may not go that extra mile because they may not feel that you deserve it. Um, they may make assumptions about whether you can afford care. And so we have to, as Black people, we have to 
advocate for ourselves and for our family members. No, I love it. I love it. You said three things, ask questions, trust your gut, and then, of course, push back. And it doesn't have to be adversarial. I think that that's one of the things that a lot of challenges or challenges a lot of people is the idea you're already emotional. You're already frustrated. And to have to communicate. I remember uh, when my son was dealing with a very rare, debilitating neurological disorder uh, that, quite frankly, left him partially paralyzed. I remember being at the University of Maryland Hospital, downtown Baltimore, and having a conversation with the chief neurologist, happened to be a black man, and I just was frustrated that they could not answer the question, and I kept asking him over and over again, this doesn't make sense, I don't understand this. And he looked at me, and he said, let me just say this so that you're clear, Mr. Brooks, I'm a man of faith, as well as a doctor, and what your son is going through is major. We don't understand it either. It is very rare. And quite frankly, even the name of what we have called what he has means that we don't know. The translation of his diagnosis means, in essence, we're not quite sure. And when he said that, it made me, it jolted me into a reality that A, he was on my team. B, he, and, and then this is when he said this, Dr. Nicole, and it messed me up. He said, and this is one of the reasons why we are aggressively going after this as if it was the worst case scenario. Because quite frankly, he could die. And when, when, when I had that frank face-to-face conversation as a result of a barrage of questions, and I was fighting my frustration of just going off. Right. Like fighting the 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 thing. I think that that healthy dialogue in that moment put me on a trajectory. And from that point on, for his three weeks stay in the hospital, uh, we built a bond with his entire team and it changed how they cared for him. I promise you it did. Glenn, I just want to say like that is so incredibly important because basically what happened in that moment is that you all had a genuine human connection. And I talk a lot about this and you all connected. You got to see him as a human. He disclosed to you, Hey, I'm not just a doctor. I'm a man of faith. He acknowledged your frustration, your concern about your son. And so, and then after you all connected in that way, you were then able to trust that he was going to do everything in his power to look out for your son. And that's so important. It's something that is increasingly being lost in the doctor-patient relationship. And it's a huge issue uh, and a reason behind, you know, the mistrust that we're seeing now um, with doctors and patients and family members. So I just, I appreciate you sharing that because that is, that really, when I was practicing medicine, that was a guiding light for me is to make sure that I found some way to connect not only with the babies, with my patients, but also with their parents. Guys, let me say this. This has been a very rich conversation. Dr. Nicole, we're going to have to have you back. Um, can you just transition and talk to a little, us a little bit about uh, the work that you're doing now? How can people find out more about it? How uh, does it benefit them? Uh, and I just want to say thank you so much for lending your voice to We All Need Some Help Wednesday, the podcast. Thank you, Glenn. Yeah, so I am a health advocate. I work with patients and mostly family caregivers. Most of my clients are adult children who, like me, were struggling trying to take care of aging uh, and ill parents. I'm not taking a lot of one-on-one clients right now for health advocacy because I have transitioned into doing a lot of consulting 
for health equity and working with healthcare organizations to help them uh, make, to ensure that they're providing equitable care and high quality care to the marginalized communities, particularly communities of color. But if people want to learn more about me and what I'm doing, they can go to my website, which is yourgpsdoc.com. And I'm on Instagram at yourgpsdoc and at thegpsdoc, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn as well. Well, I'm telling you right now, this has been rich. Thank you so much, sis. I cannot wait till we get a chance to meet face to face. And, uh, and, and, and and put my arms around you. You've been such a contributor to this room here uh, in Clubhouse. And thank you so much for lending your voice to uh, We All Need Some Help Wednesday, the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Nicole. Thank you, Glenn. <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank you guys for joining us once again for another edition of We All Need Some Help Wednesday, the podcast. Uh, be sure to download this, and if you need to connect to us any kind of way, uh, you can reach us at www.glennpbrooksjr.com. At the end of the day, y'all already know what time it is. You cannot get to any place of significance by yourself because we all need some help. Y'all be good, and we'll talk soon.